Hello there and welcome again to the Psychology Report. Uh, today I'd like to uh, introduce a um, series of topics that might be of interest uh, to you, in particular if you have children, adolescents uh, in your family, and um, kind of your own self in terms of your own experiences and your developmental years. And uh, these are several research studies that I recently read, came to my attention, and I thought had uh, much interest uh, for you as part of my listening audience. Some part of 6,500 people out there listen to this particular podcast. So here's what I'd like to do is to, uh, first of all, just kind of give you a little synopsis of alcohol consumed by teenagers. Now, nobody likes to see a drunken alcoholic of any age, but particularly if they're teenagers. Yet we know that teenagers tend to consume alcohol as little as, I mean, as early as age 12, but certainly as age as 14, along with other drugs too, by the way. So alcohol is being introduced into our teenage population quite early. And we do know that a good portion of our teenagers not only drink, maybe about 25 to 35% of them, but about 8% of them drink pretty heavily, pretty regularly, and might be considered heavy drinkers, if you kind of think of it in the context of how we consume alcohol. So what they did was to look at the brains of teenagers, 65 of them, who drank pretty heavily. Half of them drank heavily, and half of them were non-drinkers. And they followed these kids for about 10 years. They started at about age uh, 15, 13, 14, uh, up to 18, in that age range, 13 to 18, about a five-year span there. So they took these uh, kids, uh, 35 of them, who drank pretty heavily, and followed them for 10 years. And what do you think happened? Well, their brain failed to develop in the normal pattern. The brain developed more slowly, and there was a shrinkage in some areas of the brain. In other words, the alcohol these kids consumed in these early years of life affected their brain development and therefore affected their maturation program and pattern. Now we know that from other studies that the brain develops until about age 25. So if you introduce a substance such as alcohol into the brain before age 25, you're putting that brain at risk you're actually jeopardizing the brain in its development. And it's the cortex, and it's mainly on the right side of the brain, by the way, where the damage or the failure to develop occurs. There was a study done sometime earlier along this line. Where they uh, uh, worked with a group of parents who made a deal with their kids. And the deal was this, that they signed a contract not to consume alcohol and not to smoke cigarettes until age 25. They just made a deal. Well, the kids that kept that deal, they did not drink and they did not smoke until age 25, never did drink or smoke. The majority of them just passed up that opportunity. Where if the kids did not make such a pact, did not make such an agreement, tended to not only smoke and drink before age 25, but certainly did therefore did thereafter. So making a pack is, is a one way, it's just one way, to help your kid avoid the alcohol and the, uh, and the cigarette smoking and save that brain, protect that brain 
you know, let that brain mature. Let that brain become fully developed. And then a kid can make a wise decision. Okay, let me give you another study. This is in the area of false memories. Remember, we had a lot of studies and we had a lot of activity going on, what we call the false memories. That is, if you introduce the idea that maybe a child had been molested, that child actually believed they had been molested. That's kind of false memory. Implanting a false memory into a child. Well, a lot of people were charged for child, for child molestation when in fact it had never even occurred. Because somebody, and it could have been a counselor, or somebody introduced the idea that they had been molested and then charges were brought because a complaint was made and charges were brought against that person when it never even happened. As we call false memories. Now, we're living in a day of what we call fake news, false news, fake news. Now, what that basically is, it's, it's untruthful news. There's an there's a element of truth to it. There may be a portion of truth to it, but not totally truthful. And people are believing the news along the lines of what, how, what it's been introduced or how it's been said or how it's been portrayed by the press. So these are kind of false memories. And so what this particular research study found was that about 50% of the population of adults can be influenced by a false memory. That is maybe the suggestion that they went on a balloon ride at one point in time during childhood. And they believe that that may actually have been the case, or they come to accept that as being true. So false memories are very, very important. And uh, we have to sort them out because they can lead to a lot of trouble. A lot of difficulty, not only for the child or for that particular adult who accepts the false memory, but for anybody that they might accuse of some particular false behavior. Okay, that's now that's the second study that I think is an interesting one. But here's a third one I think also has uh, considerable uh, interest. What about children who are bashful? Bashful children. You know, we all have difficulty with shy children. We, we try to prod them. We try to take them by the hand. We try to encourage them to be more outgoing and to talk to people and to go into social situations and to uh, just go on their own into a particular event or an activity for children. But your shy, shy children just resist that. The bashful children just resist that. They, they require a mother to hold their hands and go with them. And even then, perhaps would resist this. So a research study was done in which uh, about 1,200 kids who were bashful or shy uh, in the junior high years were um, studied and followed for a particular period of time after they had been uh, introduced to a teacher who accepted the responsibility to help that child become less shy. Help that child to become socially accepted and socially outgoing and socially interactive. And what they found was that the children who had a teacher who worked with them, the children that accepted that duty, a teacher that accepted that responsibility to help the shy, the shy child become less shy, those children actually became less shy and less bashful. In other words, teachers served a very positive role in the life of bashful or shy children. Not just in the junior high years, but they found that in the younger years as well. So if you have a bashful child, your child is shy in some way, whatever age it might be, that child needs to be hooked up with somebody. And in, in this case, they're hooked up with a teacher, but it need not necessarily be a teacher. 
but it needs to be somebody who will take some responsibility and take the initiative to help that child overcome the shyness by encouraging them to be in, interactive, by encouraging them to participate in events and activities and to interact with children on the playground and work in a team and work in a gr small group in various ways to increase socialization skill and competence in social situations. Now, bashful kids do well academically. They're, they do not necessarily do poorly academically. They do learn, but they're more lonely. They're, they tend to be more depressed later on in life because they don't have those social skills and social interactional skills. So later on in life, if they don't develop those skills, they'll become more depressed. So that's why it's important in a bashful child, a shy child, that you do whatever you can in the early years of that child's life to introduce people who will help them overcome their shyness. Teachers are only one. Parents, grandparents, friends, uncles and aunts and older brothers and sisters and neighbors and you know, on it might be. Where anybody that can just take them by the hand and help them in social situations, give them ideas of what to talk about, show them how to interact, show them how to walk into a room, show them where to sit, show them how to kind of just listen to other people and even talk. All those kind of social skills. So shy children need not be shy always. But they will be if we don't work with them. But find somebody. Find a teacher that will take that responsibility for the shy child and help them overcome those speed bumps of shyness that otherwise they would find in their life. Now one last research study that came to my attention which I think is very important you know we have had many research studies showing that gratitude is a very important uh, attitude and a certain behavior the ability to say thank you the ability to uh, accept a gift and be very gracious and being very uh, accepting of that gift and very kind and very thoughtful to say they really do appreciate that gift and they appreciate the person who gave the gift so there's a, a great deal of thankfulness that comes from people. Well, there are people who are not grateful. There are people who have difficulty expressing gratefulness. There are people who just do not do it. And we often are offended when we give a gift and a person doesn't even say thanks. We send a card and there's not even a thank you. We send some kind of a, a monetary gift, perhaps at a graduation or at a birthday or whatever it might be, and nothing comes back in terms of a statement of gratitude. And we get a little miffed over that. And sometimes we stop giving gifts to people who don't express gratitude in return to a gift. Well, a research study was done with uh, about 500 adults. And um, they found out that those kids or those adults who do not express gratitude tend to be adults who have a high need to be autonomous, to be independent. They don't want to be dependent upon anybody and they don't want anybody to be dependent upon them. They keep a distance from other people. They keep a, uh, an arm's length distance from other people. There's a kind of a level of autonomy that exists between themselves and other people. They just don't want to be obligated. They don't want anybody to think that they will do something in return or that, th that their attention can be bought or that their interactional patterns can be uh, somehow bought off. That's not true. But people who do not express gratitude in this study were found to be people who have a high level of autonomy and a high need to be independent from other people. 
In other words, reserved, autonomous, uh, withheld, uh, withdrawn, if you will. And um, so it isn't necessarily that they're not grateful, but they don't express it on purpose because they don't want to get that sense that now they're obligated or that now they're obligating somebody else. They don't want to have that kind of responsibility for anybody. And uh, they want to remain autonomous. They want to remain independent. They want to remain aloof from other people. So they don't express, you know, gratitude. Because when you express gratitude, that means that you come together. You bring people together. Two people come together. They might shake hands. They might hug. You know, they look at each other in the eye and just smile and just express their appreciation, you know, for a gift that's been given. That's what people do who have gratitude. But uh, people who are autonomous, who want to keep that autonomy and keep that distance, just don't express gratitude. So don't get miffed. It's a personality style. It's a lifestyle. But it's a selection. It's a it's a it's a independent decision, a choice, to not express gratitude. And there's a purpose for it, and that is to remain autonomous. Hey, good to have you with me today. And um, this has been a kind of a potpourri kind of a topic today, and variety of different things that come up. But you know, you might find yourself in the middle of one of these or two of these kind of situations, or know somebody that is in a situation like this. Pass it on. And share the uh, podcast with somebody else or tell them to join in and listen and, and uh, become part of my regular listening audience and invite others to uh, join in and listen as well. They'll learn something from day to day psychology, if you will, off the street psychology that I'm trying to bring about so that we all live better. We all live at a higher level of effectiveness and success and achievement and social togetherness and responsibility. So let's. Uh, Let's work together, and here's a podcast that helps people, you know, do that. So, i uh, glad you came. My website, I was asked today, what's my website? It's very easy. Books by Hedberg. Booksbyhedberg.com. Very simple. Booksbyhedberg.com. Guy wanted my website because he wanted to pick up my book on Jonathan Edwards, A Life Well Lived. And uh, he wanted to give it as a gift for Father's Day. So, go ahead and uh, go to the website, get a gift, and Father's Day is coming, so... Um, this is now is the time to do that, if you will. So anyway, nice to have you with me. Bye for now.